Good evening, everybody. My name is Evan Lane. I'm the faculty director of the Arlen Spectrum Center. As you know, tonight is the Dare to Care Symposium, dealing with uh, the risks of uh, suicide, especially among college-aged students. Uh, why Spectrum Center? Uh, Arlen Spectrum, as we all know, longest-serving uh, center in our state, is extremely involved in mental health issues, uh, very, very strongly funded many initiatives, and mental health was one of them. As a matter of fact, this is our second symposium on mental health. You may remember we did the uh, post-concussion syndrome symposium. We were actually before the curve, uh, even before the movie came out, so we had the issue here. Uh, Spectre actually received an award in 2012 from the Cornell Medical School for all his uh, efforts in advancing uh, mental health research. Uh, tonight, we are very honored to have uh, Joan Spectre the wife of the center, of course, the councilwoman, Philadelphia. Very honored to have her here tonight. Uh, before we begin, because we're going to have Megan Scott, and Mike and Scott, who's uh, from WHYY, who will be formally introduced by our keynote speaker, Dr. Winterstein, uh, who I'll introduce in a second, and of course our esteemed panel. I'd like to thank the people who put this together. Uh, we actually had a meetings that were fruitful, something unusual sometimes. And I want to thank these following people because they really tirelessly, without much reason other than doing the right thing, did a tremendous amount of work. Uh, Sarah Slate in the back over there, uh, Stan Gorski, Jeannie Felter, Megan O'Mara, our uh, unbelievable grad student, Robin Althaus over there, uh, Dean Humphreys, uh, Neil Andrus, and our student panelist, Kimberly Reardon, who without them we couldn't have put this together. I would like to specially thank somebody who hates the spotlight, but I'm going to give it to her anyway. Uh, Karen Albert, who is the uh, administrative director of the Spectre Center, has put in an unbelievable amount of time and effort into this, and I want to personally thank her and make sure that she gets the acknowledgement she deserves for that. Tonight is two reasons. One is for the education, so you will learn about a very significant problem that exists not only on this campus, but all across America. But education is not the only point of this. This is an action meeting. We want to take from you ideas, programs, uh, actions that we can go forward to further help uh, the mental health professionals on our campus who are doing a great job. Uh, we are interested in your ideas. We're actually going to break down for a time period. You'll be instructed when to sit at the tables and think of what questions do you want answered? How do you want to go forward? How could we best make this a safer campus? We want, at the end of this, not that we want, we will prepare a report based upon what our experts say, what you folks say. And as you can see, there's a survey on the table asking for your ideas. This is just not an education. This is a going forward. We want the best ideas possible so we can do the best we can for our students. So uh, with that in mind, I'd like to introduce our keynote speaker, Dr. Matthew uh, Winterstein. He's from downtown, uh, <laughs> our other campus, the smaller campus. And um, he is the director of child and adolescent services uh, over at uh, downtown. He is a nationally known, not internationally known expert on the issue of suicide and mental health of adolescents. Uh, he was just telling me two minutes ago he's organizing this amazing day at the Philly Stadium uh, where it's going to be a suicide prevention um, day. So I'm going to put that on social media for all of us to support his efforts as, as well. I'm very honored to be introducing Dr. Winterstein. Thank you. All right. I've got two of these now. come over here. Um, well, thank you. Thank you, Evan, for inviting me. Karen, thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to get over here. I was telling the folks who are here all the time in East Falls, this is my first uh, opportunity to get over to East Falls in this kind of city. Um, and so it's really excitement to sort of see, you know, where we are these days together. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, suicide prevention on college campuses, but really the, the, the focus is to set the stage for what we do after this. Um, so there's, there's a couple of things that pop out. The first is, you know, 95% of counseling center directors uh, will argue that mental health is obviously a concern on their campus. And of course, it's a very um, biased population of folks. This is the work that they do. Um, but if you go a step further than that, 
most of them believe that rates of uh, utilization and stuff like that have increased in the past year. The challenge with that is that the data doesn't actually support that statement. What the data does support is that what we're starting to see is more crises management happening on college campuses than ever before. And we have a population of individuals who are showing up on college campuses that are um, in treatment, have received treatment in the past, and are dealing with um, more challenging and complex mental health issues than we've ever seen on college campus before. When I was in college, you never thought anybody with schizophrenia on campus, nor did you see anyone with bipolar disorder. And we have students with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder on college campuses now because we have treatment that actually can effectively manage um, that for them. The other thing that we know about this age group and this particular population is that health treatment is not exactly the first thing on their mind, although I think there's probably, a, a, you know, this is shifting a little bit, and so I think I imagine in the next few years we'll see that the data is, is a little different about this because we have health treatment in a different way um, than traditionally has, has been the case in the past. You know, if we're just looking at some numbers, what you find on college campuses is there's anywhere from seven to eight suicides per 100,000 college, college students in this country. Um, while that seems like a large number, that actually is competitive to be on college campuses because the number for people in the same age group not in college is higher than that by anywhere from uh, three to four per 100,000. So it's a much, much uh, greater risk to not be a college student in that age group than to be a college student. Uh, and of course, here's some other numbers that really just give you a sense as to um, the magnitude of some of the issues that we're faced with, which is you know, 85,000 or so attempted suicides in the past year on college campuses. That's a lot of students, a whole lot of students in a very short amount of time that's happening. Uh, it makes suicide the second leading cause of death um, in colleges, and it's been that way for a number of years. <coughs> so there's some challenges when it comes to working with individuals that may be at risk for suicide on college campuses. And the first is probably one of the most challenging ones altogether, which is the, <coughs> you know, the idea of student autonomy versus student safety because they're no longer 16, 17, 13, 14, whatever years old where mom and dad take them and drag them and send them to an appointment and make sure that they get there and stuff like that. And we no longer have the authority sometimes to actually say, you really need to go. We could say that, but actually making them go becomes an administrative type of issue and many places don't wanna go there. Uh, and so you have this challenge over you know, you have a student who clearly has some need for some level of support mixed with, well, how much do we make them get that type of support? And so it's a big uh, challenge around those kinds of issues. The other thing is the obvious one, right? There's a disconnect with families. Uh, and families can be of all different shapes and colors and sizes and, and good and bad and everything else that goes with it. And so in some instances, the family has been really the driving factor that's helped that particular individual get the support they needed up until that point. And when that person's no longer there to kind of motivate, support, drive, whatever word you want to get them to where they need to go to get that level of support, people sometimes fall from um, that help-seeking kind of behavior. I can do it on my own, you know, and, and I don't need anybody to back me up for this kind of stuff. Whereas in other circumstances, you know, whether we want to like it or not, I mean, there are family issues where sometimes that impedes somebody's ability to seek support, and then you got a college student who shows up because they clearly need some help, and now we have the opportunity to engage that person whereas historically they haven't had that opportunity uh, faced before them. So the disconnect with family and home is an interesting one. Uh, I've had some conversations with a number of counseling center directors across our state actually, and, and one person in particular was talking to me about how at a very large university here in Pennsylvania, they often like chuckle at the fact that they have college students showing up now and there's questions about like, what should I wear to this party like on a Friday night? And they're calling home and asking their mother about these kinds of things. And it's like, are we really at the point where like there's that level of need for connection with home before we make decisions about what we're gonna do with our life. So um, there's really, it's an interesting kind of complex uh, dilemma. I mentioned independent help seeking before. You know, the expectation on college campuses is that students are gonna seek the help that they need on their own. You know, we have a responsibility to say, okay, here's where you can get services, but if, you know, for those of you guys that not too long ago were on college campuses, when did we tell you about that, right? During orientation. How many other things did you hear about during orientation? And do you remember that conversation that lasted about 10 minutes on a really good day or 10 seconds on a more reasonable day about here's where you can go to get help if you need it? We give them lots of information, expect them to know all of it, and most of that ends up in a trash can somewhere 
And then we get to the point where we're sitting there going, okay, we expect you to ask for help when you need it. And that becomes a real challenge. And of course, the other twist to that is the people that oftentimes are able to recognize when the need is there, teachers, for example, and you know, they're not showing up to class. So the question is, are they not showing up to class because they don't have to? Or are they not showing up to class because of something else going on? And you have some teachers and faculty members who will actually engage students around it. They discover that they're really struggling with something, but then they're sitting there going, what in the world do I do? I'm a history teacher, right? What do I know about um, you know, managing the mental health of my students? And so independent help seeking becomes a real challenge. And then when we think more broadly about campuses and campus life, when we think about suicide prevention on a college campus, the problem is we don't know where to start. We don't know where to begin this conversation. We know that we ultimately have to get to administration to, to finish this conversation and start up. But the problem is because there is no clear starting spot, it becomes a very narrow focus as to who is responsible on college campuses to manage mental health, and in particular for what we're talking about tonight, suicide prevention. And so what happens is the responsibility then falls where? On the counseling center. Well, this is the person that clearly should know how to manage a student who might be at risk of suicide because you know, every college center counseling center director has gotten lots and lots of training on suicide prevention and, and so forth, and therefore that's where this would all land. Trying to think about what the actual statistics are off the top of my head. Something like 20% um, of individuals who died by suicide had been recently connected to a mental health provider. It's not any bigger than that. <laughs> and so we're struggling with, you know, how do we then deal with an issue where we're expecting them on their own to seek help? And the only place on our campus where we are going to drive out our suicide prevention method is only addressing the need potentially, in that case they actually sought help of maybe 20% of those students that really need it. And then what kind of support can they do? Because we can, we, I mean this is a wonderful event, but it's like, all right, well how many students are going to get the information that they need and learn? How can they support their peers and how can faculty members do this? So what we're doing here tonight is fantastic. It's a great first step in that thinking through some of these things. Then there's the reality, which is every single college campus that I've ever spoken to at the highest level, everybody says suicide prevention is a priority for us. We absolutely do not want any of our students dying by suicide. What else are they going to say? Right? There's a difference between saying that and then saying in order to support that, we need to finance that in some particular way. Not, again, necessarily putting more people in the counseling center, but figuring out, okay, we need a student wellness office because the backdoor to dealing with suicide prevention is talking about student wellness. Well, if we can support them in terms of their wellness and engagement in you know, community-based activities and get them to support each other kind of through some of those works, then that might be life-saving in and of itself. We don't necessarily need another college uh, counseling center person, although that wouldn't be a bad thing either. Um, so it's one thing to say, we're behind this. It's another thing to say, oh, and here's the dollars to put behind it too because my priority is to give you an education that then allows you to leave here and go get a job. But we all know that the cost of education these days has gone up dramatically. And so it's like, you know, I was a psychology major you know, many, many years ago. And uh, I got more than one graduation card that, you know, the inside joke of it was something like, you know, don't forget this line, like, would you like fries with that? You know, because what psychology job was I going to get as an undergrad that was actually going to pay for what was spent going to college? I stayed in school for a lot longer. <laughs> and then the other challenge is this, and it's an unfortunate reality, which is that as much as parents, you know, in the room that you've got kids that have gone off to college or you have kids that are about to go off to college, there's an assumption that the people there on those campuses have been fully trained in how to take care of your kids. I wish that were absolutely true across the board completely. Unfortunately, and this is not a statement about bad counseling centers, that's not the case at all. The issue, however, is there is no requirement by the American Psychological Association or the American Counseling Association or any of those associations that oversee licensure on a state level to require you as a graduate student to get training in suicide prevention. 
whether through crutches or intervention or any of those kinds of things. So here as a graduate student in a PhD program in clinical psychology, my formal training from that perspective in suicide prevention was about this long. I was fortunate enough to have a couple of patients that I saw when I was a, in graduate school that were at risk of suicide and I had a couple good supervisors who could get me through that. In hindsight, my supervisors were not that fantastic, but they helped me get that through the entire particular field that I was working in through that period of time. It wasn't until after that that I engaged with the right community and started to learn the right things and learn how to do this the right way with the right folks. It's a real challenge. And if we look at even the state laws that we have in Pennsylvania, there's a requirement now that uh, psychologists in this state have to get one hour of suicide prevention training every two years. One hour. Well, hold on. And it's suicide prevention training. So if you guys are offering CEU credits for this event tonight, anybody here who is a psychologist could use that and put that towards your, your licensure renewal. Why? Because suicide's in the title of the talk that we're doing today and you learn something about suicide prevention. Whereas my argument is, nobody here is learning anything about how to assess somebody for risk for suicide, although we might get there later, but the point is, we're not talking about that right now, and so it's not necessarily practical utilization there. So it's a real challenge. There's a couple of things to think about when it comes to data collection, because this is sort of the other side of it. It's like, when we think about policy and advocacy and stuff like that, we wanna understand, like, what is really truly the scope of the problem and there's been discussions at nearby states and other places about like, we should have data on how many students have made suicide attempts on your college campus and how many students have died by suicide. There's some problems with getting those data. The first problem is this. Lots of people make suicide attempts and they're not lethal, thankfully, and they're never raised to the level of requiring medical attention, also thankfully. But the point is, we don't know about most of them. You know, we have some data on number of deaths by suicide, we have some data on how many people show up in an emergency department to get um, intervention or treatment or support or assessment for suicide risk. We know about how many people um, get hospitalized in hospitals in this state uh, with a diagnosis consistent with making a suicide attempt. But after that, unless we ask people a whole bunch of questions, there's a ton of people that are lower, much lower on that iceberg that we just don't know about. Um, and so accuracy of data becomes a problem. And here, if you're an administrator of a university, the last thing you wanna do on a very sensitive topic like that is misrepresent that number. And then, and Gina will get a kick out of this because we've, we've sat in on these meetings at our Center City campus for years. There's always a discussion on college campuses about when is a student a student? When's a death from student a death from student? Like, right, we've, we've, I don't know how many times I've sat in on meetings, but that, that's been the conversation. But it's a reality when it comes to this issue. No campus wants to have to report, we had a student die by suicide. They don't want to do that because a whole lot of reasons, PR is not the reason, <laughs> the reason that, that exists. However, how do we know whether or not to count that student death as a death of a student on this campus program. So right now, we're in the middle of spring session, right? So if a student who's living on campus here dies by suicide, I think we'd all agree that that student was in fact a death of him near Philadelphia University or wherever we are in this <laughs> merger like thing right now. We would all agree to that. We'd probably fight over which university it actually was, right? We would all agree to that. However, let's say that that student was a sophomore on campus here, has already enrolled to take classes in the fall, has already paid, in fact, their tuition to take classes in the fall, and this summer, when they're home on Staten Island, they take Raymark. Is that student a Jefferson student? And does that student count on that number? Because one would argue, yes, they've already paid, they're already enrolled, they're matriculated, but somebody else would argue, but it has nothing to do with anything here, we think. So it becomes really challenging and really complex, uh, so much so that in New Jersey, they argued this in the state legislature for a long time, trying to figure out, do we put this in one of the new laws that they passed recently, or do we keep it out? They opted to keep it out because the universities were so adamant that we can't possibly give reliable data because of that issue, because of the suicide rate. 
All right, <clears throat> a couple more minutes, good. So how do we know when to be concerned about somebody? All right, so this is the education piece, right? This is your one hour of keeping you in. Um, so I was fortunate enough about four or five years ago to chair an African International Panel at MIT uh, looking at youth suicide prevention and thinking about what are the warning signs for youth suicide. Youth went up to age 24, um, or age 25 actually, for this provision. And we've had 25 national and international experts bringing together the data that they've collected, looking at clinical experience. Uh, we had surveyed loss survivors for those who had lost a loved one under the age of 25 to suicide. Uh, and we even surveyed those who were under the age of 25 and made life-threatening suicide attempts. And we defined life-threatening as somebody who made a suicide attempt and required at least one night overnight in a general hospital, not even a psychiatric hospital, because the idea was this was such a significant suicide attempt that it required medical attention and stabilization for the person stayed overnight. Most of them weren't tied to a psychiatric hospital after that, but the point was we needed to make sure that they were safe. Somebody actually saved that person's life. And so we collected data from them and asked them, what did you notice about this person in the hours, days, no more than one week, prior to either your own suicide attempt or that person's death that was different from how they usually attempt? We took those data, we compared that to what we knew from research, we compared that to a lot of clinical experience, and this is what we found. And so this is sort of, um, in a nutshell, these are the warning signs for suicide. Um, when we talk about the population, undergraduate population on uh, most college campuses. The first one's the obvious one, expressing or talking about potential suicide. So somebody who um, is talking about suicide, is writing about it, expressing it in some particular way. The second one is hopelessness about the future. And this is not just things aren't gonna get better. This is, I've tried 50 things to try to make things better, no matter what I'm doing, it does not feel like it will possibly be possible. You know, we occasionally see this in the medical school side with I'm $250,000 into debt and I don't wanna be a physician anymore. How do I get out of there? Displaying severe, overwhelming emotional pain or distress. So that survey I mentioned, it was the number one thing. This was the number one thing endorsed by those who had made the suicide attempt themselves, so the, the young people who had made suicide attempts. But interestingly enough, it was also the number one thing endorsed by typically parents, often mothers, who had lost a child to suicide. They saw this too, which to me is striking because it feels like a very internal experience. Um, but they talked about this overwhelming emotional distress. They couldn't make it go away. They had a headache, but it lived within their heart as opposed to in their head. Um, and it was a real challenge for them. They couldn't describe it. In fact, the few people who tried to describe it said, it's kind of like having a migraine headache, but instead of a physical pain in your head, it's like this emotional pain. And you recognize somebody because they look angry, frustrated, but sad and fearful all in one fell swoop. So the person is frustrated because of the, this pain that they experience. And the last bit was some different behavioral changes that you often see in people. So this is, has to be significantly different than how they usually are, which you, know, you have to remember that, different than how they usually are because some of these things you go, wow, that's so important. But they usually are sad too, but that's just my computer in there. The first is withdrawal from or changes in social connections or situations, which as we know in this day and age, that stuff changes quickly. Uh, and it's not about the one change, it's about suddenly more and more changes are happening and it becomes more of a long-term type of thing. Recent increases in agitation or irritability. Again, not how they usually are, but suddenly they're acting different. When we share the word, this, this word is actually really important, worrisome, right? If it's different and you're concerned about them, pay attention, pay attention. Uh, anger or hostility out of character or out of context. So again, it may not be how they usually are, but it, again, it's, this is not the way somebody else would behave in this situation, or this is not how they typically are, not how they're typically responding to such things. And the last one, of course, is a pretty classic symptom of depression, which is an increase or decrease in sleep. And this is not the person showing up sleeping in class and so on and so forth because they've been up until three in the morning watching Netflix or whatever. This is the person who's going to bed at a reasonable time or is trying to solve life's problems for four or five hours until their brain just shuts off and they just can't possibly think anymore. They have to get up the next day and go to class. They're responsible enough to do that. They try to roll into their nine o'clock class the next day and they just forget really. So these are our warning signs for suicide for uh, this population. And the last thing I wanna share, and I don't know if, is this the last one? Yeah, okay. 
I, I want to share this with you because so the Judd Foundation is a foundation in New York City that has for the last, I don't know, 50 years at least, um, been promoting mental health and suicide prevention in college campuses. Uh, and this model right here, which makes it a little difficult with the lighting to see some of the white writing on the blue, shows you a model that expands the conversation beyond just thinking about college uh, counseling centers. So while there are things like identifying students at risk, increasing help-seeking behaviors, providing the services for them, following crisis management, it goes further than that to things like restricting access to legal means, which isn't necessarily guns. There's lots of things on college campuses that can be lethal that we don't even think about. Uh, developing life skills. So again, think about wellness. Forget about thinking about suicide prevention. We're going to go into the other drawer and say, listen, if we can help develop life skills, then maybe this is a person who can make good decisions when they get into a difficult time. Promoting social connectedness. See, the national strategy for suicide prevention in this country, it's 200 and something pages long. It's very, very exhaustive, but I can summarize it in one word, and that's connection. People who feel connected to other people during times of incredible stress will stay connected. So uh, with that, um, I am going to turn it over to uh, Mike and Scott. So Mike and is, uh, as many of you probably know, the host of WHYY's The Pulse, um, and has been reporting on behavioral health, mental health, suicide prevention for well over 20 years, I guess, at this point in time. And I've had the fortunate privilege of getting to know Mike over the last couple of years because we've been doing a few things, well, he's been doing most of it, and I've been feeling very leisurely sometimes, um, focusing on how do we report on uh, mental health and suicide prevention and things like that. And so uh, it was a great honor and privilege for me to introduce him. here with all of you and all of you. This is a very important topic. And over the course of my career, I have often had to make a case why we should cover suicide. Because especially when I first started out in public radio now 20 years ago, um, this was still a topic we didn't really talk about at all. And we certainly didn't report about it much. So I kept having to make the case to the people who were affected by suicide to talk about suicide, and there were only few families who chose to do so about 20 years ago, and you would see the obituaries that you still see sometimes that it would say, died suddenly, and then you could figure out the rest. And often, over the course of the years, if I talked to my editors, I still had to make the case why I wanted to report on suicide, and one of the numbers I always quoted, which has been true for pretty much every year, is that the number of suicides is twice the number of murders in the US. And I find that hard to digest. I just Googled it again, just to be sure, that in 2016, there were almost 45,000 suicides and suicides and 17,250 murders. So we have to think about that, right? And how much, I'm not saying we shouldn't pay attention to murders, but I'm just saying we have to think about as a society how important of a topic this is. And that's why I, I will continue to talk about this issue. And I will also say, before we get into our discussion, that this is an issue that has affected me personally several times in my life, most recently last year. And my aunt died by suicide. And this is a bomb that will implode your family like nothing else. So um, I'm going to ask some questions that pertain to sort of like, who needs to know and who's at fault and who, you know, who should have done what. And when I ask those questions, I want you to know that I wrestle with those questions too because I saw my aunt the night before she died and I didn't know, I didn't know this was coming. And I, I feel like in hindsight, oh my goodness, like if anybody should have known, I should have known. But it's sadly not that easy, so I wanted to get those things out of the way before we start talking <laughs> so you don't think. I don't know what it's like to be on the other side of those issues. So with all that said, I'm going to introduce the rest of our panel. We have met Max, and next to Max is 
Meg, uh, Meg O'Meara, she's the Director of Counseling Services at Thomas Jefferson University East Falls. Next to her is Nicole Johnson. She is a faculty member at the Community and Trauma Counseling Program for Thomas Jefferson University at East Falls. And next to her is Kim Reardon. She is a student here, and she's also president of the campus chapter of Active Minds, which is a mental health awareness organization that I've interacted with many times over the years. So thank you all for being here. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk for a while, for about 20 minutes, half an hour, and then we're gonna give you guys some time. You have a facilitator at your table. I want you to have a conversation about some of the things you've heard and what you think we could do. And then you will bring your, your questions and suggestions back to us and we'll talk some more about that, all right? So that's sort of what we're gonna do. And I think the question I, wanna, I want to start with is the hard one, which is the one I just sort of hinted about, which is, Who's responsible when this happens? And at the same token, who has a role to play in preventing it? Because those are very hard questions. So Matt, do you want to start or do you want to pass it on to the ladies? <laughs> since you just talked? Why don't I pass it on and I'll, All right. uh, <laughs> we'll see so where they start with that one. Meg, I would think you, especially in your role, if something like this were to happen, all eyes would be on you. So. Who has a role to play in the prevention? I think we all have a role um, to help with the prevention piece. I think that this is a complex question in itself. I think um, the word responsible really leads the public to believe responsible also equals liability, right? And so I think the public message that has been out there is that we can 100% prevent suicide. And so I think that's an important piece to, to note and I think in some ways we really have to be responsible for our own mental health and accountable for that. But as a community here and what we're building here is powerfully active members. So it's not just the students, it's not just faculty and staff, it's not just the counseling center, but we're all um, being aware of some of the things that Matt already pointed out. Some, some norms are different for someone and their behavior is changing. And so I think that we all have a role and responsibility in noticing and doing something. Nicole, how about you? Um, I totally agree. I think that um, suicide prevention is not a, an I, a we issue. It is a we issue, not an I issue. So I appreciate this event because it breaks down I ignorance because sometimes we're not educated about suicide prevention. Also, I believe that this event is helping with intolerance because sometimes there's students that struggle um, with mental illness and, may, and adults staff members and faculty and we all are on this university campus together and we all may struggle and so we have to be tolerable to the next person and also we have to break down walls of indifference you know if it hasn't happened to me then I don't have to worry about it so I believe that it's not an I issue it's a we issue mm -hmm. and so we all have a part to play in prevention and we all can help out you think it's a small part that you play, but your small part can be a very big part. from the perspective of a student, I think it's also very important to acknowledge the role that society and the larger culture um, plays. So students today are experiencing a profound amount of stress. There's so many responsibilities and expectations that are placed on us. You know, have a social life, do well academically, play a sport, participate in XYZ club. And that's so much for a student to handle. And when they can't achieve this, they blame themselves. And then when you compound this further by the financial burden that is placed on um, going to college, they were saying, why am I spending so much money just to fail? Um, also, it's the first time that many students are experiencing their first real taste of independence. So they're on their own, they're not doing well, they're saying, I'm a failure, I'm inadequate. And this just compounds the shame that they feel that they might not want to be but Matt, I want to follow up, and you and I have talked about this in the past, so I feel comfortable asking it, is that there sometimes seem, seems to be a little bit of a conflicting message, right? Because on the one hand, when it does happen, we say, it's nobody's fault, right? It's not your fault, it's nobody's fault. But then we're also saying, everybody has a role to play, and that sometimes can be <laughs> somewhat of a c conflicting messaging. Well, I think it gets down to the question of why do people talk about suicide, right? Because it, when who owns 
that piece of it. I think that's a very, very complex uh, question. And I think the reality is that suicide by itself is a very complex kind of issue. And so uh, anyone who's been affected by suicide in their life would say, you know, at the moment when that happened, no, I didn't see that coming. But hindsight, oftentimes, when you start to learn more, you realize, well, maybe that was something that I should have picked up on, but why would you have? And this is where it gets very complex. And so I think the challenge for us is that, you know, as, as all the women said up here, is that everybody does have a role. Um, if we simply put this in the counseling center or somewhere or on the student's behalf or whatever it might be, what you find is that you're going to miss lots and lots and lots and lots of people. And it really becomes a community approach. You know, this, it's no... Um, intentional that we left this up here, you know, it's, it, you know, it's a community approach that really takes this uh, to a higher level. How can we widen the defense line of people who recognize the signs and could perhaps approach their student, whether it's a fellow student or one of your students, how could we broaden that line, first line of defense of people who might be able to notice something? Do you want to start? Sure. I'll go down the line. <laughs> well, I, I think it's it's educating people to begin with, and so having an understanding as to who should you be worried about, and but not just the details of these are the things to be concerned about, but then what do I do if I am concerned? Um, and so how do I engage and have a conversation with somebody who I'm, I'm worried about, um, which is not always as simple as, hey, how are you doing? Because we all know that the answer to that is fine. Um, and so how do you follow up on fine being the answer? But I, I think a big part of that is stretching out the education so people have a full understanding of uh, these are the things I can be paying attention to, but then how do I engage somebody? What do I do next? You know, because again, we don't expect, uh, to use the example before of the history professor, you don't expect the history professor to manage somebody's mental health issue. However, they might be the person that I, as a student, feel the most comfortable going to and talking about how I'm feeling. And so I approach that person about it. You need to be able to say, tell me how you're doing. Let's have it. And then, have you met Meg before? Mm. <laughs> you know, and I'll go with you. Right. So Meg and Nicole, if I'm the history professor, what do I do? So I have a student. I have some worries about them. We have a conversation. Now I'm even more worried. I know I can't, I can't call their mom, so what do I do? I think there's – yeah, I, I think one of the um, key things that should really be important is what is the urgency, right? What is the student reporting um, in that moment? So identifying how urgent is this and then getting support. So I if you are the history professor here and a student discloses that, keep that student there. Um, ask some more questions and then – Call, you know, again, just going back to how urgent is it? If it needs to be public safety, counseling, 911, something, depending on how urgent, if that student, where they are and where you are in, in terms. So I think that's a piece to keep in mind with this. Mm -hmm. And Nicole, how do I best express my concern to this person? Because I don't want to freak them out and make them feel like, oh, you're going to call 911 on me. So how do I talk to them to be helpful? I believe that, you know, really expressing to the student or the adult or whoever it is we're speaking to that their life matters. And that's the reason why we have such a high level of concern because we recognize that this is not something that we want to ignore. So really expressing concern is really saying you matter. And I think a lot of times in the shuffle of a college campus, do I really matter? I, I, I'm in the room of 50 other students um, I'm on this teacher's caseload, and the teacher has five classes. Am I really a person, or I'm just someone in the shuffle? So I think just the time and the attention, um, talking to students one-on-one, -on -one, and even the subtle things that we notice as professors, and just pulling a student aside and saying, are you okay today, really pulls in that relationship, and it helps students to realize that we really care about mm -hmm. them. And Kim, what's your take? So from student to student, how, how do you best talk about stuff like that? Well, I actually think that many of our students are educated. So I don't, I think that while educating students further would definitely be helpful, they already know. They know when something's up with their friend. They know when their friend is acting differently and when they're seeing this change in behavior. But I think what we really need to do is empower our students 
and give them the means and the know-how to do something about it. I'm actually a, um, a peer mentor, and I teach freshman classes, and I've had so many of my freshmen come to me and say, hey, I noticed something is wrong with my roommate. They're sleeping all the time. They're not eating. They only get out of bed for class. Something's wrong. What do I do? So they do know the signs. They do know what to look for. They just feel so helpless because if it's that student's problem, who am I to force them to go to counseling services? But at the same time, they're so worried about their friend. They know that something's up. And do you, Kim, get a sense that students know that when somebody has declared their intentions to harm themselves, like, they must tell somebody? Like, do you think that message has gotten through to people? Yes and no. Um, something that I've definitely noticed is that, you know, depression, anxiety, and to some extent suicide has kind of become normalized, which is a little weird to say, but um, it's almost become something that people like to talk about and it's so normal and people use it as something to bond over. You know, people will joke, you know, oh, this class makes me want to kill myself. And they're like, ha ha, same, you know? So then when someone really means it, it's hard to know, especially when students are talking about their anxiety and they're saying, this makes me depressed and they're kind of making light of certain symptoms. It's very hard to know when someone's actually serious about it and when someone's joking or when someone is serious about their symptoms, but um, portraying it in a very lighthearted manner. What kind of services ought to be available when somebody needs help? I want to ask about a few things. One is that we know a lot of people with depression, even when they know they have a problem and somebody tells them you should seek help, they often, very often, don't seek help. So there's that issue. And the other issue is that a lot of students, there's sort of this narrative like, oh, when you go to the counseling center, it takes forever and they can't see you and it'll take four weeks. And that's sort of a narrative I hear all the time, not among you know East Falls Jefferson students, of course, but of, among other students. I, that's something I'm hearing all the time. There's a backlog and it takes a long time to get an appointment. So. Let's talk about this issue first, I guess, Matt. When people are depressed, it's very hard to seek help. So how can we help them get the help, rather than just saying, you should go see somebody? Yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky because, again, they sort of rely on this model that they're going to do it on their own. Yeah, and they um, don't and, often. And oftentimes, you're right, they don't. And so um, I think there's lots of different things that we can do. The challenge is, and we sort of had a conversation on the way over here speaking about this, is like how much do you reach out to them versus expecting them to reach out to you. Because mm -hmm. somebody else is, you know, back to Kim's point before, somebody else notices the person is laying in bed, not getting out of bed, maybe just going to class, if that. Um, somebody notices this, but then it's like, all right, well, if you tell me about your roommate, like, do I then call your roommate and say, somebody's concerned about you and follow up? I would actually argue, yeah, that's, that's probably the direction we mm -hmm. need to go with this kind of thing. Because if you were going to seek help on your own, might you have done that by then? Um, and so instead, I think it's imperative that we take it, but, but again, it's a challenge, you know, to reach out and do those kinds of things. And I'm also someone who, you know, I can say stuff like that, but, <laughs> you know, I think there's a reality when families are, it, it's, it's a challenging time. Like, do we want to sit behind laws that prevent us or insurance prevent us or tie binds up and times that, that prevent us from having conversations with people who might actually know how to help you? Um, and I'm not so sure that that's always the case in Jefferson specifically. So Meg and, and Nicole, is there often a backlog? Are you guys, are there not enough people to, s to help all these students? Like what happens? So thankfully we don't have a wait list. We haven't had a wait list um, this academic year. Um, and have a great staff that is really key to making the center run the way that it does. So if a student is an emergency, they're seen immediately. We have drop-in hours every single day, Monday through Friday, which have been utilized, I think, almost 300% increase this academic year. Um, and we also have, I'm on call, which I don't know if I want to publicize this, but I'm on call 24-7. <laughs> um, when a starfish of concern goes out or, um, or a phone, um, the phone list is activated, I'm on call for consultation uh, and to help um, that. So luckily, it, we haven't had that. When students get in, I think um, 
they call for an appointment, I think the average is what, three to ten in four days, which is amazing. Nicole, do people still, I think the stigma of seeking help for mental health issues has diminished over time, but I still hear about it. And people say, I don't, I don't need somebody to tell me about my feelings and I don't want to talk about my feelings. So do you still hear that among younger people or do you feel like they're more in touch with needing help and it's okay to seek help? No, I believe there actually is still a stigma, a very strong stigma. It's coming down, but students do not want to be on a college campus and feel like they need um, services that would make them feel like they're, they're using a crutch. They're trying to prove that they're adults now, I can handle it, I can make it, and I believe that there is a stigma not only on college campuses among this population, but in our society around mental illness. And as we are educating and encouraging students to reach out more, um, I believe that the stigma is going to come down. But it takes, I appreciate the number of students that I see here because it's the students talking to each other that really is going to reduce that stigma. They develop the culture in their dorms or in the classrooms about how mental illness is perceived a lot of times amongst themselves. And so by their presence and their education and saying, you know, it's nothing wrong with getting help. I believe that we're going to see a lot more students reach out for help. Mm -hmm. Can I add something to that? Mm -hmm. I mean, and Kim being the president of our Active Minds is doing that. It's peer education. It's it's getting um, other students talking about mental health. So again, grateful that we have that being on our campus and it's an active campus. Mm. <coughs> I'm wondering also about sometimes the help, even when perfect, doesn't help right away. So I think for people who are struggling and they're perhaps in crisis and they are seeking help and then maybe that help doesn't immediately change their situation, whether that's medication that doesn't work for them or the counseling isn't helping them, that's really difficult. And that's also, I think, really hard to communicate. So how do you deal with that situation that you, know, you might have to hang on for a little while before you actually feel better? I think that, that contributes to that idea of hopelessness that we talked about before. Mm -hmm. We have to remember that um, you know, most people that seek help for themselves have been trying to help themselves in any and every other way possible before making a phone call to come in and get professional support or whatever it might be. And they've already sort of built up a little bit of a helplessness narrative through their own efforts, feeling like this isn't working and this is not helping. And then they call and they come in and meet with somebody. You know, and if, if you know, mental health services were perfect, um, none of us would actually be needed up here, largely because you'd say, okay, well, you're in for depression, we're gonna do this, and everybody gets better when this happens, when the reality is it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, somebody who comes and sees me, we, we just might not be the right fit for each other, for whatever the reasons are, and oftentimes there's things going on that I just don't even know about, and they don't feel comfortable sharing, and you know, but if they go see med, things might get better. The problem is they've built up I'm sort of supporting their hopelessness narrative to some degree, not because I'm not trying to be helpful, um, but because it's not working for them and they're thinking, oh, I've been trying to help myself and now I'm doing whatever it tells me to do and call somebody, but that's not working either. The challenge though, and you know, think about this from the student perspective, the challenge though is to be able to feel empowered enough to say that. Mm. You know, I've had way too many people, I think, over the years that I've been doing this come to me and say, you know, you can tell like something's just not working right here and I have to bring that up with them and only on occasions have I ever had somebody come to me and I always tell them at the beginning like listen if this isn't working for you come forward and let me know because like you're not going to offend me like just let me know let's work this out and only once or twice have I ever had any person say you know this isn't this isn't cutting it for me uh, there's also this assumption though too you know back into the getting better piece um, we're in a very on-demand kind of society <laughs> Uh, the expectation is if I take that pill, then tomorrow I'm better. Um, there's also that expectation if I start talking about why I'm depressed, then tomorrow I will be better. Um, and it never works that way. Um, it took us a while to get to this spot. It's gonna take us a little longer to get out of this thing. And so I, I think it's kind of educating folks on the process mm. um, to understand that. Nicole, how do you handle that with people? In the, in the process, how do you explain the process of getting better and that it's perhaps a long and winding path. 
Well, recovery in any issue is a long, lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. And that there are going to be uh, gradual improvements along the way to better the life of the person. And so to walk with people in recovery is really the model. And it's to express to people that there's going to you may hand off, meaning I may start, Meg may take it up, and someone else goes further. But recovery is going to be lifelong. And that there's going to be people along the way to support them in that process. And so um, part of one of the key components of recovery is hopefulness. And like Matt was saying, uh, to reduce the hopefulness is to give that encouragement that we will be with you. There's systems, there's people who care that will be with you along the way. And you have family and friends and a whole community of people (laughs) that are going to be with you along the way. Mm. Katie, how do you guys talk about that among students, about the struggle of staying healthy for some people and the struggle to get better? Mm. I mean, I am a counseling student, so I... (laughs) I am coming from that background, but <laughs> yeah, recovery is not linear, and it's normal and expected to, you know, move forward and then have a setback, and move forward two steps, then go back three, and that's normal and that's expected. So yeah, I think educating people about that and really reinforcing that support network, because although it's stressful to be the student that is experiencing suicidal thoughts, it's also stressful to be the friend of that person who is supporting them constantly and that's not something that I think we always think about what's the support for them because if stress is what pushes us towards the threshold of making the decision to commit suicide that friend is experiencing the same thing mm. Meg any thoughts on that can't go through them covered it so Another topic that often comes up when we're talking about young people, especially, is the issue of contagion. Is that a real concern? Is that something we should we should think about, we should know about? How do we deal with that? Meg, do you want to start on that one? Sure. So the way it's habitat effect, um, for those who are not familiar with that term. Um, but of course, it, it happens. You hear about it in the news, um, and it's when identify high-risk groups after a suicide, those that have been impacted by it, that then can have clusters of suicides happen. And so I think that's part of a reason why, I mean, doing that or having that puts a big strain on the community, and it's important to have this idea of a postvention in place where um, the community can support the community and it can act quickly and um, effortlessly because it's been reviewed and, and planned out. So let's talk about postvention, which is sort of what you do after something bad happens. So what need, what do universities have to have in place? Matt, do you want to start? <laughs> Where to begin, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things in place. The first is really um, how do you communicate that message to the other people on campus? Um, because I think too often people are scared about sending that message out that the fear is, you know, contagion, I mean, the data is clear, contagion is real. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it does increase some people's risk of suicide, of somebody else's suicide. And so nobody wants to do that. And so how you communicate that message is incredibly important. But there's a risk of not communicating the message well, too. And so that's sort of the struggle that we often face, which is how do we, how do we inform people about what's going on, but in the same sense, we don't want to provide all the details of all of this. We want to give them what they need to know, but we know that amongst students, if it's a student that dies, um, they're talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Like everybody knows it, and then it ends up on social media, and like everybody <laughs> knows about it. And here you are as an administrator trying to figure out how to share this with students, and you missed it. They've already shared it with each <laughs> other. The problem is their message may not be the right message, and the details may not be correct, and then it turns into something that it's not. So how you share that is incredibly important. Um, I think then it's like, well, what do we do with the people? Who, like, how do I identify people who are potentially at increased risk now? Like, who are the people that are the closest to the individual that died? Um, how do we support that person um, and reach out to them in whatever capacity we need to do so? Uh, and how do we share that? And sort of the other twist to all of this is like, all right, is this the time that we start communicating with families? Mm-hmm. Because you know, this could happen in spring, beginning of May, and here we are two weeks away from graduation, and suddenly we now have this risk period for a group of students. They're getting ready to go home, and yes, we've maybe had a conversation with them, but they're going home to nobody having a clue. Um, and how do you 
have that conversation. So there's that piece of it. Um, you know, but it's really communication and then supporting those who, who uh, were closest to that person. Memorials is a whole nother issue that we could take up if we had more time. But you know, you know, when it's not, thankfully it's not too, too often that students die by any cause on, on college campuses. But um, you know, sometimes there are people that are very well known and very well liked by their peers and people want to do something. Um, and in and of itself, that can be a challenge and create other additional problems too. I think we're going to give all of you some time to talk amongst yourselves for about 10 or so minutes. So we each have a facilitator at each table, right? So discuss what you've heard, what you are interested in learning more about. I also encourage everybody here to talk about prevention. What could we do as a community to do more to prevent? What are perhaps some protective factors that help people? So talk about all those things, and then in about 15 minutes, Nick will start recording that and start asking questions about that part. Yeah, nerd. Merge like Jefferson East Falls and uh, downtown, if you please. Each table will have a facilitator. We'll sit with you and help you.